Can you believe it? We're almost through the book of Acts. We started this series the very first Wednesday night in the new building, and we're getting ready to conclude in a couple weeks. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Acts 26, next week 27, and then the following week 28. And then on July the 10th, I'm hoping to get the word out, we are starting a new Wednesday night series in the book of Ephesians. And it's such a great book. I hope that more people will even come out for, for that study. In fact, we're going to be doing Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians back to back to back on Wednesday night. Some of the most beloved letters in the New Testament on Wednesday night. Now, some of you might be asking, well, Pastor, you're in chapter 26. What about chapter 25? We never covered it. Well, let me say this. The reason I'm passing over chapter 25 is because chapter 25 of Acts is mostly a record of the political posturing and the political gesturing being done by the Romans and the Jews. Basically, what we are told there in that chapter is that Festus takes over for Felix after two years. Remember, Paul's been in prison now waiting some kind of movement. And so after two years, they send Festus in to replace Felix and get things moving again. And then we are also introduced to King Agrippa II in Acts 25, whom Paul is going to give his testimony to and that we're going to look at in depth in Acts 26. Just a note about King Agrippa II. He is the last of the uh, Herods, if you will. He is the last king appointed by the Roman Empire in Judea that is part of what we call the Herodian dynasty that starts with Herod the Great and goes through Herod Antipas and all of that. And then we come to Agrippa. He's the last one uh, of the Herods, if you will. And um, so that's really what chapter 25 is about. When you come to chapter 26, I wanted to approach this chapter in sort of two different sections. I want us to look at what this chapter and what Paul reveals to us as he shares his story about God and then what we learn about Paul and about one who is being used by God to be a light. Because one of the things that you see throughout Acts 26 is this sort of focus on being a light, that God is light and that God has revealed himself to us in his light and we learn about him. And then God says, yes, I'm the light of the world, but now I want you in turn to be the light of the world as well. Which is why throughout the, the scriptures, we have, you know, verses that talk to us about walking as children of light. And the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus' message to the church, they are illustrated as a lampstand or as, as a candlestick because he wants us to give out light. You see this if you look, first of all, in verse 13 of Acts 26, where Paul again is recounting his story of his conversion. And he says, I saw a light from heaven. Okay? God is wanting to bring light to Paul. Then if you go down to verse 18, we see there that God wants to send Paul into this world so that he can use him to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. So we have there again that uh, word light and that concept of light. And then over in verse 23 of Acts 26, Paul is testifying about the Lord and he says, Christ, the Messiah, has come to suffer. That's what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And to be the first to rise from the dead, 
the first that never was to die again to rise from the dead. And then he says to proclaim light to both Jew and Gentile. So there again is that idea of light. So what I want us to see first of all is let's see what this chapter teaches us about the God of light and how it reveals God to us. Now before we get into that, I just want to say this. If you wanted to outline this chapter, it actually falls out pretty nicely. Uh, Paul talks about his past, sort of pre-conversion, before he came to Christ in verses 4 through 11. Then in verses 12 through 18, he gives his conversion again, how he came to know Christ on the road to Damascus or his personal testimony of salvation. Then in verses 19 through 23, he gives us information about his Christian life. By the way, I want to say this, and I want to encourage you in this. This is Paul's story. This is Paul's story of him and God. This isn't anybody else's story. This is Paul's story. And yet God uses Paul's story to touch people's lives, including ours to this day. Well, guess what? Each of us here that knows Christ is our Savior, we have a story. And you need to be encouraged to share your story. Satan wants you to keep your mouth shut about your story with God. But God wants you and I to share, our, and, and, and many, well, it, it, but that's my story, yeah. But God wants us to share our story because God can use our story to either bring someone maybe to Christ or to encourage someone or strength, just as he does Paul's story here. And every one of us has a story. And do not let the enemy tell you that your story is not important or that, you know, your story isn't as dramatic or whatever as somebody else's story. God uses everyone's story, okay? So that's one of the other things that we can learn from Acts 26. So I'm hoping that maybe from this, that some of you will be encouraged at some point to share your story with God uh, to maybe somebody else uh, that maybe you haven't up to this point. So let's start with learning some things about uh, God here in this passage. So in the last four chapters, see this is 26, 25, 24, 23, in the last four chapters there, Paul has shared his testimony three times with three different people, Felix, Festus, and now Agrippa. And remember, God said, I'm going to bring you before kings and before leaders and all of that, and you're going to share your story. And here in this section of Acts, we see Paul sharing his story with, you know, some of the most powerful uh, people in, uh, in the world at that time. But here's what we learn from Paul's story. In verse 14 of Acts 26, as Paul is recounting again his conversion after he says, I saw a light. In verse 14, he actually shares with us something that he hasn't shared with us about his story up to this point. And it is these words from Jesus to him. And it's these words that you see there in verse 14. You are hurting yourself, Paul, Kicking against the goads. What does that teach us about God? That God is a God of patience. I'll get back to that in a moment. Let, let me first talk a little bit about this goad. What was a goad? A goad was an instrument used by a farmer 
to primarily direct either oxen or mules as they worked. It was to keep them in line, okay? And it was dull on one end, but it was pointed on the other end. And if the ox or the mule, you know, went in the direction it should, it was fine. But if it started to go its own way and resist going the way the farmer wanted it to go, it would literally hurt itself by that pointed end digging into it. And Jesus here is using that same illustration to Paul, saying, Paul, you're hurting yourself kicking against the goats. Now, First of all, what that teaches us is you and I and anyone else only hurts ourselves when we resist what God wants us to do in our lives. We do. Because everything God is going to lead us to do is for our own good. It's, it's the best. So when you and I or anyone else is resisting what God is trying to lead us to do, we're only hurting ourselves. Exactly what Jesus says. But here's the part about patience and being the God of patience. What this verse reminds us of is that this wasn't the first time God tried to reach in to Paul's life and heart. By saying, you are hurting yourself, kicking against the goads, is a reminder that God has been trying to get Paul to transform and to change and to repent and to turn to him for a, a, quite a while now. We don't know exactly how long, but it is simply a reminder to us that God is a God of patience. He didn't, the first time he tried to get Paul to turn to him, go, well, Paul doesn't want, he's not interested, so I'm just done. I, I wash my hands and I'm moving on. No, our God is a God of unbelievable patience, and he will exhibit extreme patience in trying to bring the unsaved to Christ. And guess what? He also, with his own children, exhibits extreme patience in trying to lead us and get us to go the way he wants us to go. Most of the time, if not all the time, God is more patient with us and the process of building Christ-likeness into our life than we ever are patient with ourselves or with others. And so let us praise tonight the God of patience. I know I am glad that God has been patient with Jeff Royce, and I hope he continues to exhibit that, and I know he will because he doesn't change and that's who he is. But it's something, again, that maybe uh, times we take for granted how patient God is with us and how he works with us and how he continues to come back around. And he does that with everybody because he's a God of patience. That's what the Bible reveals. We also learn here from Paul's testimony that God is a God of purpose. If you go down to verse 18, God says something very interesting. He says, Paul... I have appeared to you for this reason. I want to designate in advance you as my servant and my witness. If verse 16 teaches us, or verse 14 teaches us that God is a God of patience, then verse 16 teaches us that God is a God of purpose. Because notice that God is revealing here that I saved you I saved you with a purpose in mind. In fact, it was a purpose that I had in mind for you all along. This was what I made you for. This is, this is how I created you for this. And God is simply saying, I came along because 
I'm very purposeful in what I do. In fact, God is always purposeful in everything he does. He never does anything in the life of the universe and in our lives that doesn't have some kind of divine purpose to it. And he is revealing here to Paul, Paul, I have appeared to you for a reason. It wasn't just to get you saved. It was to designate you in advance that you were going to be my servant and my witness. I want to encourage you with this. God has purpose behind everything he's doing in your life. Everything. Every situation he's leading you to and leading you through and leading you in absolutely has purpose. Purpose to bring about in our lives a life that will literally reflect who he created us and who he designed us to be just like he did Paul. In fact, this is the way it is for every human being, which is why God so wants people to come and, and to, to submit and to surrender to him because it's not just even about salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That's all wonderful and great, but it's also about fulfilling the purpose that God created us for and why we're here, which is what human beings struggle with. Why am I here, God, and why was I born? Well, guess what? When you and I start to follow the God of light, we will not only find a God of patience, we will also find a God of purpose. And in those two things, let's not forget that as he seeks to work out his purpose in our lives, he's very patient. He's very patient. Then we also learn that God is not only a God of patience and a God of purpose, but in verse 17, he's a God of protection. Notice he says to Paul, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I will deliver you. I will protect you, you see. God is our shield. I'm reading through the Psalms again this summer because we're going to be doing a 14-week series through some of the Psalms this fall uh, in our Heart of Worship series. And one of the ways of describing God in the Psalms, one of the most popular or most used is this shield. God is my shield. You know, he's my refuge. And that's exactly what we learn here about God again is that he will protect us. He will rescue us. He will deliver us. And, and we have seen throughout our study of the book of Acts, how many times and in how many different ways and, and by how many different means did God rescue Paul? Whether it was, again, through his nephew or through the Roman army or, or th through a, a basket that he was lowered down in over a wall. I mean, again, because he's the Lord of hosts, he has everything in the universe at his disposal. God can deliver and save and rescue us by any and every means. And sometimes, in fact, many times, I believe we are being rescued and delivered by God and we don't even know it. And it will only be when we get to eternity and we get to heaven will, will our lives be totally un, unveiled for us and we'll go, oh my goodness, God, I didn't know you were in that or you kept me from that or whatever. That's the God that we have. So he's not only a God of patience, a God of purpose and a God of protection, but then notice also what Paul testifies to about God in verse 22, that he's a God of provision. Paul declares to Agrippa and to all in the audience, I have experienced God's help to this day. See, God didn't just call Paul out there and have this purpose for his life and then basically shove him out there and just let him on his own. No, Paul is saying every step of the way, as I am fulfilling the purpose that God created me for, I have found him to be so helpful, so supportive, so encouraging. He's always been there by my side every situation. And it's going to continue because... 
The Bible says God's never going to leave us nor forsake us. God is always our God of help. Always there to help us and provide. Whether it's resources, again, because he's the Lord of hosts and has all the resources of the universe at his disposal, whether it's his own presence, whether it's just empowering us, whatever it is, we will experience God's help every day because he's the God who provides. And wherever he leads us to or whatever he leads us into, God will never lead us somewhere where he won't provide for us to be there and to do what he's leading us or asking us or calling us to do. So, in this great chapter, a chapter on revealing to us some things about God, through Paul's own story, we learn that God is a God of patience, purpose, protection, and provision. By the way, going back to our own story, that's why God wants you to share your story because you can do the very same thing as Paul. As you begin to share how God has been with you throughout your life and maybe some of the things he's brought you through, guess what? It reveals to others and it encourages others and empowers others and, and strengthens others about our God and who he is and who he's been to you. And then they get encouraged like, well, if, if, they, if, if God did that in their life, maybe God can do that in my life. That's why God wants us to share our story, okay? So that's learning about God. But then we learn some things about how to be a light for God. Because again, remember, Paul said in verse 13, I saw a light from heaven. And then in verse 18, God says, I want to send you so that you can turn others from darkness to light. So God, again, wants us to know him as our light, but then in a sense turn us into a light. And like Jesus said in the Gospels, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So let your light shine. So how? How do we let our light shine? How do we become a person of light? Or what are the traits or qualities of being a person of light. Well, I want you now to go back to chapter 26 and look at verse 6. The first one is to be a person that stands in hope. Notice Paul says here as he is giving his testimony, he says, I am on trial here because of my hope in the promise that God made. That's why I'm on trial, because I'm a person of hope. And I want you to note something here, very important. Paul doesn't say, I am on trial because of someone else's hope. Paul says, I'm on trial because of my hope. You see, we can't live off of somebody else's hope. We have to get to the point in our own walk with God where our hope becomes our own between us and God. And where you and I can stand in hope. And in a sense, when you and I stand in hope, we will also stand out. Because again, why? We live in a world of darkness, verse 18. We live in a world of hopelessness. So when you and I, as children of light, are standing like Paul in hope, we're going to be distinct. We're going to stand out there because we're living with such confidence. It's like, well, where's that coming from? Well, because notice Paul says in verse 6, my hope in the promise that God made. Do you believe, do you trust in the promises of God? And can I just say one of the great exercises that you and I can do to help ourselves as Christians 
is to remind ourselves of God's promises. Even if it's just every day taking one promise of God and focusing on one promise of God a day, there's 365 by the end of the year, right? And just pulling a promise of God out of the Bible and saying, God, I'm going to remind myself of this promise today. Because that's where our hope comes from, is, again, I can't have hope in the promises if I don't know what those promises are. And through knowing the promises of God, I can begin to strengthen and build my hope on those promises like Paul. And we saw that the primary promise that, that Paul was thinking about was resurrection, right? But there are so many other promises of God. We've already shared one. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, you know? So many different promises in the Bible that you and I can discover. And so being a person of light is being one who stands in hope. When we stand in hope, we will stand out in hope as well. And Paul there is saying, that's why I'm on trial, because I'm so different from those around me, including his fellow Jews, who, though they said they believed in the Old Testament scriptures, they weren't embodying or living out that hope. You see, hope is something internal, but it, it, it should be reflected and fleshed out on the outside. I'll even use this as an example. Our countenance, our face, it, it reflects whether we're living in hope or not. I mean, right? Because we, you know, we can be like the psalmist says, my soul is downcast. Why are you downcast, my, my soul? And trying to encourage himself uh, because what is happening on the inside of us is always reflected on the outside. And so we need to remember that, that can other people see hope even though it's an internal thing? Absolutely. You and I, when we're around people who have hope, oh my goodness, what a difference. And how many of us, because I've heard this from many of you, and I've certainly been on both sides of this as a pastor with doing so many funerals over the years or memorial services. Isn't it an amazing difference between doing the funeral of a Christian that you know where they're at and that they're in heaven and going to a funeral of an unbeliever? I mean, you couldn't draw a, a stronger contrast between those who have hope and those who have no hope, which is why Paul tells the Thessalonians, yes, let's grieve, and it's okay to grieve, but let's grieve like those who have hope, not like those who have no hope. So that's the first way you and I can be light, is to be people of hope and stand in hope. Secondly, we can be a light by having a high view of God and by maintaining a high view of God. Look at verse 8. Paul says, why do you people think it's so unbelievable that God can raise the dead? Paul's basically calling them out, saying, if you believe in God, then why is it so hard to believe that God, if there is one, could raise the dead? Do you not believe that? Is your view of God so low, so weak, that God couldn't do those things? What Paul is saying is that when you and I maintain a high view of God, when God is so great in our eyes, when he's such a big God, when he's the almighty God, when nothing is too hard or difficult for him, when he can do impossible things, when he can do miracles as we sung about, he is mighty to save, 
he can deliver, he can rescue, then my goodness, that view of God is going to help us to be a person of light. Because God will use our lives and the fact that we have such a high view of God to draw people to us because he wants people to see him in that way, you see. In fact, that's one of the reasons why worship is so important because through worship, hopefully we are maintaining a high view of God by the songs that we sing and, and by you know, declaring who God is and what kind of God he is. Uh, worship is a way of reminding us Oh my goodness, God, you're great, you're big, you're awesome, you're majestic, you're all these things. That's why, you know, learning to praise God and worship him and adore him on an everyday basis is so important because it helps us to maintain a high view of God and not bring God down to our level or to, to a very small, you sort of manageable where we can wrap our minds as human beings around God. No, let God be God. Let him be God. And let him be the God that can do the impossible. With God, all things are possible. Nothing is too hard for the Lord, Jeremiah declares. So that's a great way to be a person of light. And Paul was calling out his audience on it. You know, you say you believe in God and yet you don't believe he could raise the dead. So that's another way to be a person of light, is not only to stand in hope, but to have a high view of God. Third, look at verse 19. Paul says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision that I was given when I met Christ, Jesus, the Nazarene on the road to Damascus. The third way to be a person of light is to be obedient and act upon what God is revealing to us in our life. Very simple, but yet, in a sense, profound if we would do it every day. That whatever God is revealing to us, whatever the Holy Spirit is stirring in our hearts, because can I say this too? Many times as Christians, I think it's like, I'm just looking for the Holy Spirit and, and God to do, you know, to lead me to what, what the next big thing is. And, and not that that's not important, but many times the Holy Spirit is just wanting us to just start learning to do the little things. Going back to Sunday's message, whoever knows what good it is to do and doesn't do it is sin. So start doing the little things you know you should do every day and just be obedient to what God has shared with us. Obedience is, is a way to be light in this world. That's what Paul is declaring to King Agrippa. But here's a fascinating thing. What Paul is also declaring is that he had a choice. Now think about it. Paul actually heard the voice of God and, you know, had this wonderful experience with God on the road to Damascus. And many of us would go, well, if I had that same experience every time that God wanted me to do something, I'd be obedient. No, we wouldn't. You know how we know that? Think about the Jews in the Old Testament. Experience with God alone is not enough to make sure that a person is obedient. How many things did the nation of Israel and the people of, of, of you know, God, the, the Old Testament Jews, how many things did they witness, did they see, did they experience about God? 
and they still didn't believe. In fact, wasn't that why God was so upset with them and why they couldn't go into the promised land? Because God said, you saw the plagues that I gave to Pharaoh and the Egyptians to release you from bondage in Egypt. You saw the pillar of fire uh, by night and the cloud by day. You saw the parting of the Red Sea. You saw these things. And yet when you sent spies into the land, you came back saying, well, there's giants in the land. We can't go in there. Really? And this is where we can, you can also marry then the idea that they never had a high view of God. Because even after all the miracles that they saw and all the experiences they had with God, they still didn't believe. Because their view of God was like, well, the giants are bigger than our God. <laughs> really? So experience alone does not automatically equate to obedience. And Paul's basically saying the same thing. I was obedient to the heavenly vision. He could have, on the road to Damascus, said, I hear you, Lord, but I'm still going my own way, and I'm still going to persecute the church, and I'm still going to kill Christians, and that's, that's the way it is. So that's where we have to be careful that just bringing someone to an experience with God doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be obedient. Just for any more than you and I can sit in a, on a, in a Wednesday night service or a Sunday service and we can go through worship and we can hear the word and the Holy Spirit can be moving and, and we, can, we can sense and know God wants me to do something or make a choice or make a change or whatever and we can say, nope, not doing it. Hard hearts, stubborn hearts, it, it happens. But if we're going to be a person of light, not only do we need to stand in hope, not only do we need to have a high view of God and maintain it, but we need to be a people who are obedient to what God is revealing to us each and every day. And then finally, look at verses 24 with me for a moment and 28. In the middle of Paul's testimony, Festus basically interrupts him and doesn't say very kind things. <laughs> he basically says, Paul, you're a crazy man. You're insane. You're mad. This whole thing about, you know, God and all this stuff. This is, this is craziness. And then in verse 28, King Agrippa's reaction is, in such a short time, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Now, in the English translation, what we don't get in Agrippa's response is literally his contempt for Paul's testimony. Basically, what Agrippa is saying to Paul here is, it's going to take a lot more than what you have just told me to persuade me to be a Christian. In other words, Agrippa is saying to Paul, you failed. I reject your testimony. Now, I want you to take these two responses of Governor Festus and King Agrippa. Not very positive, right? So in order for us to be light, we have to be a person that will not be deterred by what other people think and what other people do. Because notice in verse 26, Paul says, no, I'm, I'm speaking truth and I'm speaking rationally and I'm speaking freely. And by the way, that word freely means with confidence, with boldness. Paul's not backing down just because he gets that negative reaction, just because some people think he's crazy and mad and, and that he's failed. I mean, can you imagine 
So many Christians today, if they got that reaction from a grip, go, I'm never going to share my testimony. I'm never going to share my story ever again because I failed. Maybe I did it wrong. Maybe I, I didn't say the right thing. I mean, you and I, we all battle with that, right? I should have said something. No, no. We could say everything right. But remember what this chapter teaches us. These people are in darkness. These people are under verse 18, the power of Satan. And there's a spiritual struggle and a spiritual world out there. And all God asks us to do is just be light. He doesn't ask us, because we can't, to do any more than just be the light that God calls us to be, you see. But I love Paul here. Paul's a great example to us. He lived his life as light in darkness, because again, Sometimes I think we forget that we're not light living in light. We are light as God's children and as God's followers living in a world of darkness. So we shouldn't expect, you know, everybody to just hug us and embrace us and say, oh, yes, I'm, I'm with you. You're, you're great. You're amazing. Keep sharing your story. I mean, at times that, that could be the response. But a lot of times it's not. And for Christians that care too much about what other people think and what other people are doing, they will hide their light because they can't take being rejected. They can't stand not having people not like them and think they're not crazy or whatever because they love Jesus. But in order to be light, and in order to be a strong light in a world of darkness, you and I not only have to stand in hope, we not only have to maintain a high view of God and be obedient to what God is revealing to us each and every day, but we have got to get to the place where we are not deterred or even discouraged by what others think of us and what others do. Paul's like, if that's what you believe or that's where you're at, that's between you and God. But I'm not backing down. I'm speaking freely. I'm speaking with absolute boldness and confidence because I know what I believe. And I am persuaded, Paul said, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, Paul said. That's the way Paul lived. And that's a great example for us as well. By the way, even after Agrippa sort of rejected Paul's testimony here, his story, very interestingly, Paul does say, I'm praying for you. In verse 29, I'm praying for you. By the way, we're going to talk a lot about prayer on Sunday, but I love that about Paul. Paul says, I'm not even just praying for you, King Agrippa. I'm praying for everyone here in this audience everyone within the sound of my voice, that they would be like I am except for these chains, Paul says. And then don't miss the way this chapter ends. Here you have basically the leadership in this area of the world at this time, Festus and Agrippa. And as they're leaving the hall where this hearing took place and where Paul was able to give his testimony, 
It's fascinating that as they're talking amongst themselves and Bernice Agrippa's sister's there too and maybe some other dignitaries or whatever, they basically say to one another, we haven't heard anything from Paul's mouth that would warrant him being imprisoned or put to death. Nothing. In fact, Agrippa noticed that the very last verse of this chapter says, if he hadn't already appealed to Caesar, I would have released him. Why is that so significant? Because what Luke wants us to know, and he's even setting this up as Paul gets ready to go to Rome, is that it wasn't just Paul on trial here. It was the church that was on trial here. And in a sense, it was the God behind the church that was on trial here. And notice, at this time, in history, in the world, even amongst unbelievers, they found nothing that was worth imprisonment or death. In other words, to them, let these people follow their God wholeheartedly. Let Christianity go. Let's not bother them. We don't feel threatened by it at all. It's not bothering us. Let them go. And if they want to be crazy like that, do it. You see, because remember, Back in chapter 1, Luke is writing this to a man named Theophilus. And he's basically setting forth to Theophilus, Theophilus, all these things, these are documented in history. This isn't just we Christians making this up. This is part of Roman Empire history and Jewish history. And all this stuff is laid out there. In fact, Paul earlier on says to Agrippa, he says, do you believe, Agrippa, in the prophets and in what I'm telling you? Because Paul goes on to say, none of this stuff that I'm telling you was done in a corner, Paul says. In other words, when God did this with Jesus Christ, it wasn't like in some closet somewhere where nobody knew what was going on. Paul is saying, when God brought Jesus Christ into this world, and set him before the world at this time, the Roman Empire was the world leader at this time, and they oversaw everything that happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. And all of Judea and all of Jerusalem knew exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. And all the Roman Empire would eventually know because, because Rome was the world empire at this time, and, and all the roads of, of the Roman Empire literally you know, went in all directions in the known world at that time, the truth about Jesus Christ was going to filter out to all the world. It wasn't that people didn't know. It goes back to what God said in verse 18. I'm sending you, Paul, to open their eyes, to turn some of them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This chapter just reminds us that God is a God of provision, protection, and purpose, and patience. He's a wonderful God. He's an amazing God. There is no one like him. And that when you and I know this God of light, he says, now, I want you to be a light for me out there in the world. And this chapter really tells us how to do that, to stand in hope, to have a high view of God and maintain it, to be obedient to what God's revealing to us every day, and to not be deterred or discouraged by what others think of us and what others do.
So let's go and let's be light for the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for this amazing story that you are telling not only in the book of Acts, but Lord, the story of Paul, his conversion. And Lord, how you have used his story, not just 2,000 years ago, but Lord, how you continue to use his story even 2,000 years later to be an encouragement to us as followers of Christ. And God, I just pray tonight for each and every person here that they would be encouraged to share their story. What's going on in their life between you and them? And that the enemy would not discourage them from opening up their mouth and sharing their story by telling them that they have nothing to share and that their story won't help anybody else because that's not true. You want to use each and every one of our stories with you to be an encouragement and to strengthen others, God, throughout our life. And so I hope and pray, God, for each and every one of us that the next time we sense your leading to open up our mouths and share our story, maybe even just a part of our story with somebody else, that like Paul, we'll be obedient to that heavenly revelation and that we'll follow what you tell us to do regardless of the response because maybe the response like Paul won't be positive maybe it'll be negative but that doesn't mean you don't want us to share our story maybe at that point it's just planting a seed in someone's life that isn't ready yet to become a believer or maybe it's another Christian whose heart just isn't in a place where they're ready to totally accept or embrace it, but God, you still want us to share. And so God, I pray tonight that all of us would not only be encouraged by Paul's story in Acts 26, but we would be encouraged to share our own story as well. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.